Well, good morning, church. Welcome back for week three of our series, Advent Conspiracy. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've been conspiring together to think a little differently about Christmas, to make Christmas meaningful again in the midst of all the consumerism. Well, this morning, I'd like to start with a little bit of interaction. I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and ask them this question. What's the most memorable gift you received last Christmas? All right, turn to your neighbor, ask them that question, go. All right, good. You all got more into it than the first service. So let me just see, by a show of hands, how many of you had an answer to that question? Okay, okay. The, the few, the proud, the brave. How many of you could not remember a gift from last year? All right, a whole lot more. That's right, that's right. Now, my suspicion is that some of us can name a gift from last year, but we struggled to name a gift that was truly memorable and impactful in our lives. And I got to be honest, as I was preparing this week, I had a difficult time naming a single gift I got last year for Christmas. So sorry for those of you that gave me gifts, but... Uh, <laughs> This is what it is, I guess. But it should make us pause and wonder, what is the purpose of gift-giving at Christmas? I mean, if, if we can't even remember what we got, what is the point? Why are we spending countless hours driving around looking for parking spots at the Bridgewater Mall or standing in line at Target or fighting traffic on Route 22 or accumulating credit card debt? Because we feel so much stress to buy gifts that often nobody remembers, and you guys are proof of it. How did we get to this point? I was interested in this question, so this week I did some research into the history of Christmas gift giving, and what I found is that nobody knows really for sure where it began. There's several theories on how gift giving to family and friends became a centerpiece of the holiday, and the first theory is this. Well, it it traces its origins all the way back to Bethlehem in Matthew 2 with the wise men who set the pace by bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, some other people will trace it to the 4th century where people in Europe and the Middle East gave presents to one another at a raucous winter festival honoring a pagan god. So basically, if you give gifts at Christmas, in this tradition, you're all pagans. Ha! (laughs) Now, early Christians wanted to phase out this festival, but they knew that dumping it would cause a big backlash, and so they created a rival festival that marked Jesus' birth and kept the practice of gift-giving alive. Now, thirdly, and I think really interestingly, another article claimed that buying Christmas presents for children didn't catch on until a growing distance emerged between the working class in New York City, shout out to New York, during the first half of the 1800s. The idea was that wealthy parents began giving gifts to their children as a way of keeping them at home away from the corrupting influence of the lower classes. Now talk about the Christmas spirit, right? (laughs) Actually, it really makes me rethink gift-giving. Now, most of you are sitting in the room right now, and you're saying, are you trying to ruin Christmas for me, Pastor Bob? I assure you, I am not. I'm not suggesting that you stop giving presents so you can take a deep breath, but I am nudging you to rethink, nudging all of us to rethink gift-giving at Christmas. 
Because truthfully, the very first Christmas was about gift giving. God gave the greatest gift ever in Jesus Christ. And so giving gifts can be a very memorable way to reflect and celebrate a Christmas. But the, the gift on the first Christmas was a much different gift. And understanding that gift can show us how to give more to the people we love, gifts we might actually remember. But here's the reality in our world. I think many of us don't remember our gifts because we get too much stuff, right? If you get 20 gifts, it's hard to remember. If you get three gifts, it's easier. And that, frankly, that's why sermons only have three points, and even those are hard to remember. <laughs> in fact, I was so challenged by this concept that my wife and I are talking about how we can rethink doing our Christmas presents. Because, listen, here's a crazy thought. What if giving so many gifts at Christmas and spending so much money on material gifts actually keeps us from being truly generous? Now, that's a counterintuitive thought. Right, but when we focus on getting so much stuff, some of it becomes fluff. It has no meaning. It's obligatory. And so we get stressed out doing it. What, what if buying less actually helps us to give more? So on the very first Christmas, the wise men were following this star and searching for a baby. A baby who was supposed to be the king of the Jews, the savior of the world. And when they found him, Matthew tells us this in chapter 2, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now look at that middle phrase. It says they opened their treasures. Now, this is a really interesting story because if you back up a few verses, you will see that the wise men meet another king along this journey, King Herod. And King Herod was a much different king than Jesus, right? In this story, there's a confrontation between two kingdoms. Herod's kingdom takes, Jesus' kingdom gives. Jesus' kingdom moves the wise men to open their treasures and give a precious gift of great value. And so today, what I'd like to do is talk with you about opening our treasures this Christmas season and how our hearts can be moved to give more. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean buying more gifts or spending more money. To understand how to give more, we have to ask three crucial questions. First, why should we give? Second, what moves us to give? And then finally, how should we give? So why, what moves us, how? And those three questions address our head, our heart, and our hands. If we want to give more this Christmas, I really think we need to answer all three. So before we do so, let's pray and ask the Spirit to intervene on our hearts. Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would, um, that you would meet us where we're at, Lord. Father, my friends that are here today, whether they're in the sanctuary, whether they're watching online, uh, Father, I ask that you would just go and speak to them there, Lord. I don't know everybody, but you do, and I pray that you would move on our hearts to help us open our treasures and give more this Christmas season as you have given in the gift of your Son. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when it comes to Christmas gifts, some of you out there are like me. You are a Christmas Eve shopper. 
Now, now, seriously, I know that some of you out there don't go shopping for your gifts until the day before Christmas, and then you are scrambling around trying to find whatever is left in the store to buy your loved one, right? No wonder shopping is so stressful and the gift isn't memorable. Now, we do this because we didn't put any forethought into the gift, and we didn't ask the question, why should we give? And if we're truly going to be people who give more, if we're truly going to be generous people, we need an answer to this question. So to discover an answer, let's look back at Matthew's gospel, because shortly after Jesus' birth, we meet a group of people called the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. They came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I just have to admit, this is a strange development in this story. Because in other accounts, we read that Jesus is born, shepherds from nearby come, angels come to see him. But here we learn that wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. So who are these wise men? Right, some translations call them the Magi, which refers to priests and experts in mystery from Persia and Babylon, which were to the east of Israel. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, the terms wise men referred to a wide range of people who practiced astrology, dream interpretation, study of sacred scriptures, and magic. In other words, these guys were the fortune tellers and magicians of their day. These are the guys who are coming to find Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but it strikes me as a bit odd that these wise men would go looking for a Jewish king. I mean, these are the last people you would expect to be making an incredibly long journey to find Jesus. But because they studied the sacred writings, they were familiar with Old Testament prophecy and were intrigued by his, by his fulfillment. Some even trace their origins back to the day, days and influence of Daniel, who was exiled to the east and called the chief magus in Daniel 4.9. So when this star appears in the sky, they follow it. In fact, uh, the star seems to be guiding them in, in some supernatural way, almost like it's reaching out and grabbing their hearts. And this was no small feat for them to take this trip because when these guys traveled, they, they took a whole big group of folks with them and, and then it would, have taken, it would have taken them several weeks to get to Jerusalem. So here's the truth I think we take away from the wise man's journey. I think all of us are following a star somewhere. That we're all on a quest, all of us in this room, to find a king to worship. And God, in his heart of love, wanted to show these wise men his gift of love in Jesus. He wanted to show them the gift-giving nature of their true king. But we also learn that this was happening in the days of King Herod. And he's a very different king, as we said, than the one they're seeking. Look at the reaction to the news that a new king has been born by Herod. It says this in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And, when he, when, and he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born, because these guys like, knew the sacred writings. Now, who, who was Herod, and what's his motivation for finding this Messiah? 
Well, this is the king they called Herod the Great, who ruled in Israel from, and, and Judah from 37 to 4 BC. And he was a ruthless king. He looked a bit like this. He even once murdered his own wife, several sons, other relatives. I mean, this guy killed everybody in his family. He's not the guy you want coming to your Christmas party. Don't give this guy any eggnog. Like, run away. Herod built temples and theaters and cities and fortresses. He was a real estate developer who had more money than he knew what to do with. In fact, he probably got too many Christmas presents as a kid. This, he, this king was the epitome of self-serving. He doesn't want to give. He wants to take. He wants to keep. And so when he hears that another king has been born in Israel, he's disturbed. He's threatened. And so he calls together all his best men, and he asks them, who's this Messiah? Where is he born? I need to kill him. He doesn't say that out loud, but he wants to kill him. Herod's kingdom was selfish, unjust, and terrifying. Now, do you see that there's a collision course we're on here? There's two kings. There's two kingdoms. And they're at odds with one another, right? One king is the model of giving. And in the future, he's even going to give his own life for his people on the cross. The other king is a model of taking. He will even take others' lives to keep his power. And so after Herod's advisors search the scriptures, the wise men show up looking for this rival king, and Herod sees an opportunity. Look at what he does in verse 7. Then Herod, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, do you see what he's doing? Herod is that character from all those movies you love to hate. He's acting like he wants to worship the king, right? But truthfully, he wants to destroy the true king. So he tells the wise men, go, find him, tell me where, is, where he is. I want to worship him. Yeah, right. And at this point in the story, we got a really bad impression of Herod. He's sinister. He's self-serving. But I want us to pause for a second and really and truly ask ourselves a question. Are we like Herod? Now you think, well, that's a silly question, right? But at Christmas time... When it comes to presents, do we secretly desire to get more presents than we need? Because getting more stuff can be a way of building our own kingdom rather than Jesus' kingdom. Now, if you're still not convinced, think about it this way. <laughs> Have you ever bought a gift for someone you secretly knew would benefit you? I have. You wrap up the present, you give it freely to the other person, but you know that you will probably get to use it. Now, maybe it's a book you're also going to read. Maybe it's an appliance or gadget you know you're going to get to use. Maybe it's a trip the other person will take so that you can get some alone time. <laughs> My point is, giving a gift like this doesn't truly put the interest of others First, we're more like Herod than we would care to admit. But what is Jesus' MO as king? 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you ask the question, why should we give? The answer really is simple. We give because our true King Jesus gave of himself. He wasn't like Herod. But here's the reality, church. When we selfishly keep possessions and power, the world looks at us and says, look at those people. I want nothing to do with them. That's sad. So I think there's another powerful reason to give generously, and it's this. Our giving impresses the world. Now think about that. We always are talking about reaching people with the gospel, but if we really want to be effective with our witness, we need to be givers. It's been said that generosity is the best apologetic we have. Because when you are known as a generous person, people are drawn to you. And I don't just mean money. Author Ebony Green writes this. She says, too often many of us think generosity is always related to money. When instead, I have learned that generosity is the free will giving of love, attention, tangible help, and resources. And so that's why opening our checkbooks and giving people a bunch of expensive gifts at Christmas doesn't always make them memorable. See, Herod had lots of money, right? He probably gave gifts. Maybe there were strings attached with his gifts. I don't know. But you would never describe him as a generous person because to be a generous person means more than your wallet. Are we reflecting Jesus in our generosity? Because when we are, even non-believers notice Al Jacobs is a well-known author for GQ magazine. He's an agnostic, but he wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. Maybe you've heard of it. In his own words, he, he was planning to follow every single rule in the Bible as literally as possible. And there was a point in the book where he embraces the invitation to tithe or give away 10% of everything he earned the previous year. And when he did, listen to what he writes. Jacob writes this. He says, and as I gave away money, I think I might have felt God's pleasure. Now, this is an agnostic person, not a committed Christian. Why did he have this experience? Because there's a certain joy and completeness that can only be experienced through generosity, and that's the way God set up the world. He says it's truly more blessed to give than receive. Or as Carlos Rodriguez puts it, the actual experience of giving releases the pleasure of God. Why? Because God gave of himself first. God himself was the very best apologetic to the world. Why should we give? Because Jesus gave. And when we give of our time, our talents, our treasure, when we're generous with our attentiveness, with our encouraging words, people notice. Christianity may be getting a bad rap in our world today, but I wonder if that's because Christians are not being as generous as they should be. I wonder if people see us more like Herod than like Jesus. What if we embrace generosity as a lifestyle? Because truly generous people don't just understand why they should give, their hearts are moved to give. And that gets us to the second question. What moves us to give? I mean, really and truly, 
step back for a second and think, what would move you to pull out your wallet or pull out your, your phone and give money from your bank account? What moves you? What captures your heart? Now, in an audience this large, there has to be some of us who are not giving as much as we can, perhaps because our hearts are not captured by God's vision. So let's come back to that story in Matthew 2, because here we had three rich wise men in search of a king, and they meet King Herod along the way, this selfish, egotistical king, this stingy king. It's not who they're looking for. Instead, they search long and hard. And finally, finally, the star leads them to a baby. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. So let's picture this scene. The wise men are caught between these two kings because on the one hand, there was King Herod who represented Rome with all its power and riches and they could force them to bow to their wishes. And on the other hand, there was a baby in a manger. And the star they were following led them to that place. And I wonder what it was like for them to see Jesus face to face because his kingdom was one of humility and generosity. In Jesus' kingdom, there's no corruption of power. There's only equitable justice. The wise men, like us, stood between these two kingdoms. Now, in our modern American Christmas, these two kingdoms go to war with each other. And we're forced to answer the question, will I bow down and worship the kingdom of consumerism and individuality and the American dream, or will we worship the true king? Look at how the wise men respond in verse 11. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we come back to where we started. Right, They opened their treasures. In other words, they didn't just give. They gave more. Why? <laughs> Why? Now, at some level, they were moved to give their treasures. And this is what we're trying to uncover today, right? Because you can know why you should give, but if you are not moved to open your treasures, you will not give generously. Now, scholars debate the meaning of these gifts, uh, but most likely... These gifts show the reverence with which the wise men viewed Jesus as the king of the Jews. In other words, by giving these gifts, they were giving Jesus the honor he was due. And in that understanding, we see the true motivation in our giving. That in order to give, your heart has to be captured by the true king. Because listen, you will give, you will give to the person or the cause or the possession that most captures your heart. Guaranteed, everybody in this room will give some way, shape, or form. And so when you look at your calendar or your bank account, what captures your heart, church? Because when Jesus captures your heart, when you sit at his feet, when we bear allegiance to his kingdom, when we know him more, we will give more. Our treasures will be open. Now, the first week of the series, we spoke about what it means to worship fully. 
Last week, we discussed what it means to spend less. And if we're committed to worshiping Jesus, and if we're committed to spending less, now we can give more to the things that God cares about. And I wonder if that's what the wise men learned in the manger, that worshiping Jesus causes us to give more. That's why they open their treasures, because his kingdom is better and truer than any other. And guess what? They wanted nothing more to do with Herod after that. Verse 12, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And we ain't going near that guy anymore. Now think about just how amazing the story of the wise men is. How how could magicians from the east, people you would never have expected to worship Jesus, come and worship him? And yet, they traveled a great distance to meet this king. They, and they rejected Herod's kingdom. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom is one of generosity and love, and Herod's kingdom was empty. Jesus' kingdom caused them to open their treasures. So, what does it look like for our treasures to be opened? That's the final point, the How? Because once we've wrapped our heads around why we should give, now we have to ask how to do it. The concept has moved from our head to our heart and finally to our hands. I need to practice how to give. Well, writing to the Philippian church years later, Paul writes these famous words about imitating Christ in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather... In humility, value others above yourselves. Now, the church in Philippi was struggling with the spirit of rivalry. There was some competition happening amongst the believers because everyone was looking out for their own personal agenda. They all wanted the most Christmas gifts, probably. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. He says, we need to be like Jesus. How? In humility, value others above yourselves. That if you want to know how you should give, always give humbly and think of others first. That produces true generosity. Look at verse 4. He says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He says, look to other people's interests. Now, if we're honest, that's a hard thing, right? Because we're constantly thinking about ourselves. Some of us may be saying, isn't there a time when I need to consider my own interests? Perhaps, but constantly looking out for yourself doesn't produce a generous heart. It produces a stingy heart. So what does generosity look like? How should we give? Listen to the example of Jesus himself. Paul writes in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How should we give like Jesus? What did he do? Listen, verse 6. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, did you hear that? Jesus Christ, the Word, was God. He made the heavens and the earth. He, and, but he didn't flaunt that power and hold it over our heads. Instead, he, he used that advantage not for himself, but for us. In other words, we need to give by leveraging ourselves for others. That if we want to give like Jesus, we need to use our key resources to help others in need. 
That's how we reflect the image of our gift-giving God. Paul goes on, verse 7. He says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What does that mean? Well, Paul is stressing here that Jesus, who had all the privileges of being the king of the universe, gave them up to become a Jewish baby bound for the cross. That he could have stayed comfortable where he was in heaven. I mean, listen, if I were in heaven, I wouldn't want to come to earth. I mean, everybody here is trying to get from earth to heaven. Jesus did the opposite. Jesus' love drove him to come to earth and become a human. So to give like Jesus means we give up our comfort for others. Giving like Jesus can infringe upon my calendar because I give time for those in need. Giving like Jesus hurts my checkbook because I give more than I might want to give, but I'm able to give. Now, Paul makes one more point in verse 8. He says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in this verse, we find the crux of what it means to give like Jesus. How should we give? Yes, leverage yourself for others. Yes, give up your comfort for others. But ultimately, true, generous giving means we sacrifice for others. By giving his life on a cross, Jesus modeled what true sacrifice looks like. And I would argue that if we aren't sacrificing, we should ask ourselves, am I truly giving? Because if it doesn't hurt, we can always give more. Now, before we leave today, I want to offer some practical ideas on how we can give more this holiday season and beyond. Author Jeffrey Kranz uh, notes that there's many, many ways to be generous. And so he asks the question, how do you sort out all your generosity tactics? And he comes up with a helpful tool called the Generosity Matrix. Now, I was a big fan of the original Matrix movie. In fact, I hear there's another Matrix movie coming out, and I'm wondering how Keanu survived the last one, but that's another story. Anyway, Kranz comes up with a four-block matrix, and it looks like this, right? Those of you out there that like matrixes, you'll love this part. So on this matrix, you have things that are limited that you can run out of if you give too much. There's also stuff that's unlimited that you'll never run out of. There's stuff you've earned. You get it by working. And finally, there's stuff that's free. You didn't do anything to get it. Now think about being generous in these four quadrants. What does that look like? Well, for example, let's look at that bottom right quadrant. We can be generous with free, unlimited things. And so examples of this could be words of encouragement, compliments, high fives. Now you may think that's silly, but I find it pretty meaningful when someone comes and gives me a high five. Right? It's like saying, yeah, you did it. Those didn't cost you anything. You can give an unlimited amount of them. In fact, some people from the first service were high-fiving me in between services. So putting words into action right, right away. Generous people are often encouraging people. Secondly, look at that bottom left quadrant. We can be generous with free but limited things. And so an example of this would be giving of your time to someone who's hurting. It doesn't... doesn't cost you anything, but, you, but there's limited time of it, right? There's, you have a limited piece of it. Time to listen, time to help them move. And so an idea to be generous in this category is to open your home in some way, shape, or form this Christmas season. 
Christmas is a time to invite people into your home and build relationships. In fact, I know someone in our church who always opens up their home on Christmas to those who don't have family in the area because she never wants anyone to be alone on Christmas. It's really beautiful, but that's the type of thing I'm talking about. Have game nights with your neighbors or friends. Throw a New Year's Eve party. Don't be stingy with your home. Be generous. You have no idea how many people around you are longing for the relationship that you can give. And displaying who Jesus is and what he has done through your generous hospitality is one of the clearest ways we can love those around us. Now look at that top left quadrant. We can be generous with earned but limited things. And these are harder things to give away. And this is where most of our minds go when we're talking about being generous because this includes things like money and resources and influence with others you've spent time building up. So this category hurts more than the others. It costs more, right? And so what I want to do is challenge you to think this Christmas season and pray about redirecting your financial resources. See, in our house, we have a budget for Christmas gifts. And that means we've thought ahead of time about how much we will spend on gifts in a given year. Now, if we didn't do that, I guarantee you we would spend a whole lot more money without realizing it. And so as a result, we might not have, if we did that, we might not have extra money to give to kingdom causes that we want to support. My point is that when you commit to worshiping Jesus, it should affect the way you spend your money. So again, what if spending less on gifts that no one will remember and more on eternal investments that can change lives. What if we did that? Perhaps that means you would prayerfully consider making a year-end donation to NBC to go towards our Expanding the Table vision in 2020. Now finally, look at that top right quadrant. We can be generous with earned, unlimited things. And this category may be the most valuable item you can give because an example of this is wisdom. Right? It's something we earn over time. You don't just wake up one day and become wise, although maybe somebody out there was wise from the moment they were born. I don't know. That wasn't me. I had to earn it over time. The characters in our story are called the wise men, and they wisely taught us to follow the star to Jesus. Now, something that a lot of us have is wisdom. It's earned over years of experience. But when you give wisdom to somebody, you don't lose it like money. You can share as much wisdom as you might possibly want. All these things are examples of a generous life. So look at those four quadrants and ask yourself, how can I give more? How can I reflect the heart of Jesus and model the example of Jesus to others? Because when we understand the how of generosity, people will see something different. Because this, listen, this world is full of selfish, stingy people. The early church understood this. In fact, they understood it so much, they started a movement that changed the world. Tim Cower says this about the early church. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and practically everyone their money which was incredibly countercultural in that day and age. Don't we want to be known for our generosity? Don't we want to be people who give more? 
Because if we want the world to notice, we need to stand up and be generous. We need to give more, not less. And this happens when our hearts are surrendered to the true king. So ask yourself, who exactly is Jesus? He's the king who left his place on high in heaven and gave himself sacrificially for us. His love drove him to become a human and leave heaven and come to earth. Now, that is the type of leader I want to follow. That is the type of king I want to surrender to. He's not a, he's not a self-serving king like Herod. No, he's a self-giving king, a king like this world has never seen. What would you give for a king like this? You see, at Christmas, we're too focused on getting that we miss the joy in giving. But Jesus is the king who gave, and we're called to give like him. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know how to get more of Jesus and how to give more like Jesus. So let's give. Let's give more. Let's give exponentially more. Author and Bible teacher Beth Moore makes this profound assertion. She says, Drain Amazon of every book on living your best life. Read them till you're blue in the face. Highlight the brightest yellow, and you will, you, no one can compare with eight simple words of the mouth of Christ. It is better to give than receive. That's the secret to a fulfilling life. Our generosity is the best apologetic in this world today. Generosity causes the word of God to spread and confronts each of us with the truth of the gospel in such a way that we must respond. What would you give for a king like this? How will you respond? My prayer is that this Christmas you won't just give obligatory gifts, but that your heart will be truly captured by the true king so that you can give with purpose, with power, and with abundance. And in so doing, you will join him in changing the world. Let me invite the worship team back on stage. We have one final song to sing. And as they come, I would close with the words of an old Christmas song, very appropriate for today, as we consider the example of the wise men. The song goes like this. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Oh, oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright. Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. And may we all be guided to that perfect light this Christmas season. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I thank you for my friends that are here today. Father, I pray today that you would just nudge us, Lord. Help us to be generous, not stingy people. Help us to be people who give like you, because you gave of yourself. You came as a baby, Lord Jesus, and one day you grew up, and you chose to die a brutal death on the cross so that we could have life. You got hell, we got heaven, Lord. Thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. May we meditate upon that this season. In Jesus' name, amen.